Everybody, welcome back. It is season two of 80s High, the podcast that revisits the most radical movies, TVs, pop culture, games, and more from our favorite decade, the 1980s. We're your hosts. I'm Ben. And I'm Chris. And Ben, we're back from summer break. It's the first day of the fall semester of a new year. We did. We made it. There were mountain bikes. There were sleepovers. There were squirt gun fights. It was, it was everything we hoped. I mean, we're really excited to be back. You know, we left for summer break and we didn't know when exactly we were coming back. We knew it was like fallish, but we didn't have any idea. And I have to tell you, Ben, we're coming back at my favorite time of the season, A, fall, but B, Halloween. I love this time of year and I love being scared, freaked out, frightened. Oh, it's just so much fun. I'm right there with you. I'm a fall baby, so I love all the fall stuff. Corn mazes, pumpkin patches, apple orchards. But oh, then, yeah, uh, yeah trick-or-treating, Halloween decor. Haunted hay that, rides. Haunted hay rides. Although oh. I learned maybe about, it's been about a decade, but I learned that uh, at my age, I can't handle haunted houses anymore. I freak out. It's oh, terrifying really? to me now. Okay. I love that as a teenager, yeah. you know, you've got someone maybe you've got a little crush on. You're like, oh, come a little closer. We're going to make it through here. And that was cool. Oh, hold my hand. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. As an adult, no, can't handle it. Terrifies me. Terrifies me. There will be no jump scares in this episode. I just wanted to put that out there. Oh, thank God. Now, besides uh, getting in summer school and getting to spend all summer with the principal, yeah. did, did anything rather 80s happen to you on our summer break? So I like to rewatch shows, just kind of have them on the background. Was watching 30 Rock recently. 30 Rock, of course, mentioned in our Harry and Henderson's episode. They have a whole episode that's like a homage to that and like John Lithgow's in it. It's great. So obviously that episode came up in my rewatch, but also I'm watching one and it's, I can't remember what season, but Tracy Jordan is super famous and he's so, he can't handle the pressure of the fame. And so he wants to just get away from it all and decides he's going to go to Africa and spoilers, he doesn't actually end up going to Africa, but he's pretending to be there. And so they're like Skyping with him. And he's like, I met Lady Smith, Black Mombazo, and Paul Simon. And I was like, wait, we talked oh about God. them in our Graceland episode. And then in that same episode, there's a whole like skit where Liz is going to have to move to LA and it flashes to her and she's like, excuse me, can you give me directions to 10? And the guy's like, you mean the 10? Again, we also I <laughs> ranted and raved about that as a very Hollywood scripty kind of a thing. And last but certainly not least, there is a mention as an offhand joke about the underdog 1980 U.S. Olympics hockey team. Oh, my God. And I was like, they channeled half of our first season episodes. It was fantastic. I was like, OK, we were meant to come back. This is a sign. That's amazing. And isn't the theme song written by Pat Benatar for 30 Rock? Actually, it was. Yeah. <laughs> I knew it. Wow. Look at 30 Rock just channeling. That's pretty amazing, actually. That's pretty cool. It was great. And you you had a little something too, right? Yeah. I can't say it was like all the planets aligning like that. But uh, I don't know if it's an exclusive deal, but Kenner has been re-releasing the original Ghostbusters toy line. It might be exclusive with Walmart. Unaltered. Like the actual original. Right. Original model. Wow. In the original, type, like same print packaging and everything like that. that. Wow. Okay. Very cool. 
Uh, I do have still both original Ectos. Does Ecto it cost then, as much as a Brontosaurus on eBay I from Dino Riders? <laughs> no, they are very reasonably priced online, okay. actually. I was okay. very impressed. Okay. And so I have them, but, you know, for a being that's not supposed to be able to enact a lot of physical damage, my Ecto vehicles are destroyed. Like, the doors mm. are gone. Looks like I made paper doors to put in place. Uh, they are beaten. I mean, they're like, you know, that yellowing of faded plastic oh, yeah. over 30 years. Oh, yeah. So I was like, you know what? I would love to have a brand spanking new Ecto-1 and? from the original model. I pre-ordered it at the beginning of summer. Okay. Uh, and it arrived about a month ago. Oh. And like, look, I'm going to hold this up on Zoom. <gasps> Just the packaging. Uh, I, okay, so I think we talked about this. I had the Ecto-1 and I remember yeah. that box. Well, if you're ready oh. to really hit nostalgia, look oh at the actual oh photograph on the back. Yes. It just, like, takes you back. Oh, I loved that car. I played that so much. And it wasn't just Ghostbusters. I think I talked about I, like, mashed up all my Right. You characters. had G.I. Joe's in the backseat of that. Not a G.I. Joe. They were different size. I was mask. a little bit. They had, had to be. Mask, sim- mask was even smaller. It oh would be God. like a Ninja Turtles. Remember, they were, like, oh, the, yeah, for they're sure. like the He-Man size. That's kind of what those all are. For sure. Yeah, yeah. So I'm not going to be crazy and, like, leave it in the box forever in, like, mint condition. It shall be open. It'll be played within this household. But, uh. You know, I'm, I was pretty excited. The box art's amazing. A great little nostalgia trip. Oh, fantastic. We did come ripping back with a survey, but it's not like just about this episode's topic. We asked about, because we love the season of Halloween and, mm-hmm. and uh, fall altogether, kind of did a broad sweep. And we're just going to read just a couple answers to one question on this. We're going to sprinkle this all throughout October. Yeah. But we, we've got to have the class of 80s high involved in the podcast or we're, or we're not 80s high. That's right. We're just two people. We're just we're just two people gabbing away. So one of the questions out of the gate was, tell us about your favorite Halloween costume that you dressed up in during the 80s. And did any answers jump out to you? Well, I mean, some of these are very 80s-tastic. Obviously, Darth Vader costume, definitely. Uh, sort of like a, a generic zombie ghoul, nothing exciting was one of the responses. Hey, I think we were all that thing. Like, you just had that costume in the back of the closet that you were like... Yeah. Yeah, mom, yeah, yeah. mom and dad wouldn't buy anything new this year. And you're like, well, gonna recycle. <laughs> or you just forgot and you didn't go out and buy a thing. And all of a sudden it's October 31st. Right. You're like E.T. You're like, you've got the sheet on. You're like, I'm a ghost. Again. Exactly. Uh, exactly. Go. Exactly. But these two felt so 80s to me. I was like, yes, it wore my little heart. One of them was my Superman costume. But more importantly, the old cheap plastic ones with the mask, with the elastic band and the vinyl coveralls. And that usually had the name. Like it didn't have like Superman shut. It just said Superman, right? Or it said right, like, exactly. Right. I, I remember my brother was asteroid once where the video game asteroid and it says asteroid on his chest. And then the faceplate was an asteroid. So he just looked like a, <laughs> I don't even know what, like a, like a really bad thing from like the fantastic four. Yeah. Like just a, a rough, rock face. Exactly. Exactly. So hilarious. And then the other one was my mom used to make most of my costumes and my mom definitely made mine for a couple years and or I had to find objects at my home to recreate a thing because we didn't have a lot of money and didn't get to go buy stuff. So kind of like your forts. You had to dismantle your forts to build your Halloween costume. 100%. Exactly. (laughs) So good. So good. You know what didn't pop up on that list though? What was that? I didn't see a single person say for Halloween that they went as a xenomorph. I mean, it's such an easy, inexpensive costume. I know. Well, it's probably due to a lack of education. So I feel that it is our public (laughs) service to therefore bring our listeners into the history, the chemistry, the wonder that is Ridley Scott's Alien. Remember, we normally end our episodes with a surprise reveal, but we were gone for like three months. 
So we didn't get to do that. Right. And as a result, I, I told Ben, I'm like, this is your favorite part. We can't deny you or our listeners the opportunity for the secret reveal. So we recorded it about a week ago and we wanted to share the, in the moment when Ben told me what the topic would be for today's episode. So here we go. So Chris. Benjamin. If we are coming back hot and ready with 80s High in the month of October, you know that we have to come back properly and respectfully. And that means we're going to have to talk about the greatest horror movie of all time. Oh my goodness. Oh my goodness. Okay. All right. But to do so, I'm going to have to go way back to our pre-podcast brainstorming sessions and bring in blasphemy to make it happen. Uh, Blasphemy? That's right. The only way we can do this next episode on 80s High is to hit the emergency 70s disco ball. We are going back. Oh, dear. To bring 80s High season two to life. Oh, my God. We're going to the deep, cold, lonely, dark corner of space. Yes. Upon a fated trucker ship. (laughs) Sailing in May 25th, 1979 to the greatest horror movie ever made. Oh, Alien. Oh, oh. As soon as you hit the 70s button, I was like, it's alien, it's alien, it's alien, it's alien. Yes. Oh, my God. If you could not tell by my giddy laughter, I am stoked to talk about alien. So oh my good. Gosh. So oh my set gosh. your cryosleep chamber to open <laughs> next week. Make sure to alert mother that things are going down. Because next time on 80s High, we're going into the hive and we'll see if we can make it out of alien. Can't wait. Oh, so good. Yeah, that's good. I'm so excited, as you probably could tell, to talk about this. But before we go to history, Ben, I need to know what's for lunch today. Yeah, I'm a little worried. I see the lights blinking around me here in the control room, <laughs> and I feel like a message is coming in from Mother. And I'm wondering what she's about to say. <laughs> Attention, 80s high. I'm Jackie, here to share today's homeroom announcements. Don't be a nerd. Get in with the in-crowd by following 80s High Podcast on Instagram. Today's lunch menu will feature the Face Hugger Special, Seafood Chowder. If you feel a pain in your stomach, well then you must be hungry. Jump into hyperspace by joining the class of 80s High. Send us show topics, corrections, or other totally tubular memories and opinions from the 80s. Email 80shighpodcast at gmail.com to join. That's 80s podcast at gmail.com. After school today, join the economics club for their monthly stock trading competition. Greed is good when it comes to having a good time. Thank you and have a radical day. Go Mogwise! I feel informed. I know all the things. Let's not delay. Is it history time? Absolutely. And we're just going to have to go recover the audio files to find out what happened on the Nostromo. As a first on 80s High, I do want to give a little bit of a, a prologue warning to this episode that we're doing a horror movie, and we are going to talk about some subjects that could be terrifying, nightmare-inducing, 
Uh, there will be some sexual themes that we're going to get into. So if you are sensitive to those kind of themes or you are listening to this episode of people, we might recommend maybe giving this one a pass or just go watch some documentary stuff on your own about aliens. May not be the episode for you. May not. But if, uh, you know, you're comfortable at least listening to those kind of topics and are curious, then by all means, climb aboard the Nostromo and join us on this journey. Or maybe just join us and don't go on the Nostromo. <laughs> So we are here in history to talk about what I dare say is the greatest horror movie ever made. Wow. That yeah. is, okay, you're coming out swinging, buddy. And I know, I know it's a little sacrilegious that I busted out the emergency 70s disco ball. For the season two premiere of 80s High. But as we'll get into, the influences that this movie put forward into the 80s and beyond, I mean, what, it was? It came out in May of 79, so it's only seven months shy of 1980. It's, it's close enough. Ben, I feel like you're convincing yourself at this point. I, I don't am. care. Our listeners don't care. No, They're they just excited don't. we're talking about a movie that was obviously watched, beloved, cherished all throughout the 80s and beyond, so... You sold us, man. One person somewhere just unsubscribed. I'm not saying everybody's on board. This <laughs> was like, I, this was 80s high. Listen, no. I talked about Battleship that came out in the 50s. I think we're okay. That's true. So let's jump into history. Yeah. So I highly recommend, I watched this documentary again. I've watched it several times before. On YouTube for free, The Beast Within, The Making of Alien, which based on how the cast looks, I should have just looked at the date, but it looks like it was made sometime around Alien 3, like right before Alien 3. So where did this idea for Alien come from. So we're going to talk a lot about author Dan O'Bannon, who, if you want to see what the maximum level of salt is in the world, watch the Beast Within documentary, because <laughs> O'Bannon is not super thrilled about this process. Oh, okay. He's a little bit of a sass monster? Little, little sass monster. He's great to watch. He, he looks like Mark Twain, but with like modern day sass. Oh, <laughs> it's great. that's great. I love it. So he's working on this sci-fi movie, Dark Star, with John Carpenter, another incredible director from the 70s and 80s, oh, yeah. director of one of my favorite horror films also is The Thing. Oddly mm -hmm. enough, also about an alien monster coming to an isolated group of blue-collar workers, and there's also some impregnation going on. It's... I don't know. There's a blend there. Anyway, he's working with John Carpenter on this movie. Okay. Dan ends up hating the look of this alien that's in the movie. It's like this browned blob that he finds ridiculous. And he's like, you know what would be great? If there was a movie like Dark Star, but it was scary with a good-looking alien. Mm -hmm. And that was the whole start of all this so dan knew like his early ideas was like he wants to have a story about a few astronauts on like a blue collar kind of ship that they wake up from cryosleep they get a message from a nearby planet they go down they discover aliens have crashed there and they get stuck and that's about that was like the really genesis of where he got started that's like the first act ish of the movie yeah or less, exactly right? yeah so dan goes and gets invited to work on dune and the one that got made, not the crazy Jodorowsky, <laughs> which I highly recommend everybody watch that documentary, Jodorowsky's Dune, because it's like, how many drugs can we pump into one idea for a movie? It's incredible. It's awesome. It's a lot of fun, but you see why it didn't happen. That's a lot of 80s properties is how much cocaine oh can we God. Can exactly. fuel this project. <laughs> so Jodorowsky's Dune is a great documentary. Anyway, he goes to work on Dune and he meets H.R. Giger, this Bavarian artist, designer, and Giger, uh, they're like, I think they're either at a bar or he goes to Giger's apartment because Giger wants to show him some artwork. And uh, the first thing they do is Giger offers him opium. Like you do. I mean, if you're going to have a guest over, you offer right. opium. And then Giger pulls out his sketchbook called the Necronomicon. 
and says, Dan, I'd like to show you my artwork. And let me guess, Dan is terrified. It's creepy and horrifying. Yeah. And Dan said, like, hey, why do you do all this opium? And he's like, because it helps the demons and the nightmares I have go away. And he said, outside oh, of the creepiness of that, he actually really Lord. enjoyed Giger's company. Sure. Like this thing. A little terrifying. Dan meets Ronald Shusett, who sort of a, he becomes the executive producer and sort of co-author. Not really author, but he's helping Dan O'Bannon kind of find the story for Alien. So they're working together. They keep Giger in the back pocket because at the end of the day, anything that looks organic in the movie, like any aliens, the the ship, everything is Giger's vision. All this like bony sexual stuff that looks it's, like it's been kind of called like biomechanical like it, yeah, it, that's it's definitely like word. it's there's the organic pieces to it but like merged almost seamlessly with like mechanical constructed exactly. elements but very curve flowy it's not rigid or like it's it's just a very sleek smell like the alien itself right it has a exactly. very sleek kind of sinewy look to it which is disconcerting it's all the whole movie is made to make you feel uneasy so you're like is this alive is it a machine is right. it both that's very uh disconcerting so dan is working on at the time what the draft of this movie was called star beast mm-hmm. was the original movie title And he's writing there and he's typing over and over again. And he's like, there's got to be a better name for this. And every other sentence, he's writing the word alien. Then the alien does this. Then they got an alien message. Then the alien's here. And he goes, oh my God. And as Dan describes in the documentary, the word just leaps off the page. And he's like, oh, alien, that's the name. It's going to stick. You know, like I said, they crash, they get, they, they, they're going to go on the planet, but then there was this mystery of how do they get introduced to the alien, how does it become horrifying? And it was Schuster's idea, the executive producer, how does the monster get on board? That'll amaze everybody. It doesn't just sneak in behind them, like, tiptoeing onto the right. ship, right? Like, right, right. It's like in a luggage, they're like, wow, this luggage is so heavy. Yeah, exactly. So Ronald, or Ron, in a much more graphic way, says the alien will have sex with one of them. And that's how it'll shock. And they, him and Dan then started workshopping this idea about how that impregnation will happen through the mouth. A seed will be planted. It'll burst out through the chest. And according to Shusit, in like three weeks, they had 85% of the whole plot ready to go. That's impressive. Now, this, this is where it gets a little uncomfortable. If you're, not, if you're not cool with this, skip like a minute in the podcast. But they said, you know, the reproduction via implantation was deliberately intended to invoke an image of male rape and impregnation. And so both writers were really adamant that the first person the facehugger hits has to be a man. Firstly, because they wanted to avoid this sort of cliche of women always being the easy target in like slasher and horror movies. Right. Secondly, because they felt like making a woman the casualty of a symbolic rape felt really inappropriate. And lastly, they wanted to make male viewers feel even more uncomfortable uh, with the reversal of the gender conventions. Yeah. So that's where this all comes from. So that's implanted in Giger's head. Giger's thinking about, as you see, the facehugger as a very phallic tube. There's a lot going on with that. So as an exec producer is supposed to be doing, Shusa starts shopping this around and Fox gets interested in it. However, Fox puts a team of brand new writers on the script and they go to town. And let me guess, this is where Mr. O'Bannon's salt and sass kicks into, like, overdrive. It's like a Dead Sea amount of salt that shows up in the documentary here. And so the, the new writers were saying, like, the bones are kind of there, like space truckers lost in space and they come in contact with an alien. That, that's on board. But the rest of a lot of the, the scenes, the jump scares that were super overtrodden, that just monster slasher movies had done a bunch. So they had to rewrite it to make it... Super crazy special. Really, really interesting. Mm. A lot of it was really changing the character of the film. 
And what's really upsetting, I won't get into the details, but Dan sees a, a new copy of the script after he's no longer the main writer, and his name has been removed as a writer. That's going to smart. Not okay. The only new idea that the original writers liked was the idea of Ash, the uh, android that That's comes right. in. That wasn't in the original script. So what's awesome is Fox gets the script and they're working on it. They're like boring, lame. Nobody likes sci-fi. We're not going to do space, opera, drama, sci-fi, boring. We're not going to do this. What, what might change their mind, Ben? And some little tiny startup indie film comes out called Star Wars A New Hope. Did that movie do okay? Did it do all right? It didn't just move the needle. The needle (laughs) shot off off the scale. Yeah. And Fox has like green-lighted. Alien is a go and get it out there as fast as possible. And as I understood... Alien was the only script they had ready to run with. Yeah, and so right. it, it's not even just so much that they were like, we want this movie. It's just like, we want this movie that's immediately actionable. But they had been treading water so long to make up their mind and waiting for Star Wars to come along to get everybody excited. There was a little director tied to the movie by then in consideration. Uh, maybe a little name you've heard, Sir Ridley Scott. Sir Ridley Scott loves this script. He's really interested in the story, but they haven't greenlit it yet. So he's waiting and waiting and waiting. And while he's waiting, he's sketching. And I didn't know this before studying it more, but Scott's a great artist. And he storyboards movies on his own. And he sketches concept art and he does all this. And what he's really into as an art influence is something that I love because it's a comic book series and a movie I loved called Heavy Metal, which is sort of this series of disconnected stories and like punk rock futures. Okay. So a lot of his art is inspired by that. And one of the main comic book artists, uh, Mobius, is in it. And so it's this super fresh and like really crazy sci-fi future thinking that's going into it. And Ridley's drawing the corridors of the Nostromo and the refinery and the spacesuits and the the crash ship, The uh, I think they called it the Big Croissant or something on, on set. Yeah, and they wanted it lived in, much like Star Wars. Ridley really wanted the ship to look like it had been kind of like pieced together, rebuilt, patched up, like the Millennium Falcon, right? It's always breaking down. It's yes. kind of on its last hyperdrive unit. It's that same kind of a thing they wanted. This thing is a... It's an industrial hauler for an ore refining platform, yeah. right? So it's like, it's not going to be sleek and beautiful. This isn't the Enterprise. And I want to come back to that in chemistry, but that is one of my favorite aspects of this movie is that it feels so real. It feels so lived in, Yeah, uh, which helps make the story more of a believable. It's great. So he draws up all this beautiful artwork. And in that time, while Fox has been like, yeah, we'll put $4.2 million behind this movie, they see Scott's sketchbook and they're like, all right, we're doubling your budget. You get $8.4 million just because of what he had sketched. Right. So Scott cites four movies, really. So uh, one movie is It, The Terror from Beyond Space is like a really old like 50s or 60s movie. That's sort of a start of this sort of stuck on a spaceship. Scott loves A New Hope. He loves the new Star Wars movie. He loves 2001 A Space Odyssey by Stanley Kubrick from 68. So that's his, like, inspiration for, like, life in outer space. But then as for horror, his main movie he draws from is The Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Hmm. Sorry, in case a huge horror aficionado is living, it's THE Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Point of order. I think what I said uh, insinuates that there might be many of them. Right. But this is THE Texas Chainsaw Massacre. It's THE Ohio State University. Oh, my God. Oh, dude, don't even... Of (laughs) of horror movies, yeah. (laughs) So this huge, beautiful set is built. I mean, the ship is all... Like we said, it's physical, it's living. It's this big... The actors talk about that they could get lost. Like, you open a corridor door and you're like, where am I now? Mm. And that made it really scary for them, too, because... Like, they actually legit got lost in this tiny, tight, real space. Yeah. So I want to talk more about the team who's a part of this thing. 
You, of course, have Ian Holm playing Ash the Android. For those who don't recognize that name, most recently you might recognize him as Bilbo Baggins from the more recent Lord of the Rings movies. Yeah. You've got Tom Skerritt, who at the time was like a really big time, like serious American actor. He was like in a bunch of action. Is he? He's in Top Gun. Legendary mustache. See, similarly, sci-fi, I always remember him from his character in um, Contact. Oh, yeah. Great call. Uh, So Skerritt's playing Captain Dallas. He's in charge of the ship. You've got John Hurt. Who is he? Missions science? No, he's not the scientist. Ash is the scientist. But John Hurt. John Hurt is the executive officer. Thank you. So he's the XO. He's Kane. He's Kane. He's also sort of like a traditionally trained British like stage actor. He's actually a, a quite a good actor at the time. Yeah. The curveball in here is uh, Sigourney Weaver. And the casting department, you know, had been looking at all these different actresses to bring on to play originally what was scripted as a man's part, Ripley. Becomes female, and for Scott, it came down between Sigourney Weaver and do you know who else? Oh, real quick, I just wanted to say, I read that they had written all the roles unisex. Oh, you're right. Originally. And then maybe at some point it became a male character that then they flipped to a female character. Yeah, I think when O'Bannon wrote it, it was all unisex. Right. And then when Fox got a hold of it, uh-huh, they like okay. made it like a dude sci-fi movie. Which I thought was pretty forward thinking. It felt like for 79 for unisex, for to sure. say, you know what? Like we're going to write these characters a little bit vaguely, depending on where the director wants to take this, interpret as yeah. he will. That feels very much... I don't know. It feels a little ahead of its time. I agree. I was really impressed by that. But to your question, question. so Sigourney Weaver or I, okay, I think I saw this. Is it Veronica Cartwright? Uh, Bigger. Because I think she initially auditioned. She plays Lambert, the navigator. Yeah, right. But I think she initially auditioned to be Ripley and was really bummed to be Lambert because she felt Lambert was just too, um, she had no like, agency and she was a weak character but apparently she was supposed to symbolize the audience who felt out of control and unable to do anything oh well then she pulls that off gloriously yeah she does in the the documentary cartwright's the one who comes on set for the first time and reflecting on geeker's night she's like everywhere i looked it was just penises and vaginas yeah like she was very (laughs) from his design there's a great quote genitalia influencer um okay so back to the question way bigger uh carrie fisher miss meryl streep herself Oh, okay. Was the other contender for a grand dame of the eighties, indeed. Both of them had been classmates at Yale, but ultimately Weaver got the job because Streep um, had lost her partner at the time and was in mourning, so she couldn't participate in the movie. So, so Sigourney Weaver got it, and she did the screen test where uh, it's actually made the final movie. So at the, in the very end of the movie, when Sigourney is sort of like leaving the message of like what happened to the crew, and she's just kind of talking and narrating. That was part of her audition was just to read that script. And they were like, boom, you've got the tone. You're in. That's awesome. I've also seen screen tests of her running back and forth down a hallway with milk crates lined on either side and like light strobing through it, just looking scared and lost. I think that's part of her her screen test, too. I love that. Oh, that's great. What was really hard for her is she she said she's an off-off Broadway actress coming from theater to this. And this was really hard for her to transition to Alien because I don't know if you saw this in history too, and I didn't actually know how much of this, but a huge portion of the dialogue in Alien is improv Really? A lot of it is made oh. up on the spot. Like, 
you'll see it all over the place, like sitting around the, the meal table. They're like just spitballing there. And some of the like the bickering back and forth that yes. they do are kind of like the put the flashlight over here. And, you know, there's just a little bit of like kind yeah. of playful, but sometimes not playful banter. Yeah. Radio chatter when they're standing around huh. trying to figure out how to find the alien like halfway through the movie. There's a ton of it. And she's like, you don't do that in the theater. The, the script is gospel. Right. And you don't make stuff up on the stage. Right. They pull you <laughs> right. off. Yeah, yeah. So I thought that was really interesting. And then the last little part about the crew that I thought was really interesting is they intentionally made all the crew, like the ship crew, not hang out with the actor Balaji Badejo, who plays the alien, to just make him more foreign and creepy. You know, I, I've heard of a lot of movies that do that, and I think it's a good call. Like, to, you yeah. don't want them to become chummy because then it creates a familiarity you do not want, particularly in a movie called Alien, where you're not supposed to understand what this thing is at all. Oh, yeah. He's the dream Hollywood story where, you know, they were trying to, the art department, there's a whole section of the documentary that talks about creating the alien and its look and its costume. And it was a super hard thing because they needed to be thin so they could build all these elements on top of it, but it kept ripping. They needed just the right body size to make them big, but movable. And they couldn't get anyone to work. And they're like, man, we just need someone super tall and lanky. And the the casting director was at a bar and saw Balaji just standing at the bar. How tall is this dude? Uh, I don't have the numbers. Is it like 7'2 or something? He's 6'10. 6'10! 6'10. I think the, the suit ended up being 7'2, so they needed yeah. somebody close okay. to that. So he's just standing at the bar, and the casting director walks up, and they're like, hey, so do you want to be in movies? That- and then he, he's the alien. <laughs> and fortunately, like, he's a graphic designer, so he's very into, like, creative stuff. And he's like, let's just do it. I'm super intrigued. They sent him to Tai Chi and yoga to get ready to move like the alien, all slow and un- uncoiling. So I love that. Oh, one more person of the team. Jerry Goldsmith does the epic and super iconic music, which I think is beautiful. I think the score to Alien is amazing. I have one more small credit. Oh, please. Helen Horton, the voice of Mother, who strangely doesn't come in until she tells you the ship's blowing up. Wow. Good call out. And we, of course, forgot Yefet Kato. He plays Parker, the chief engineer. Right. He was salty, not like O'Bannon, because nobody can be that salty but him. But he was like dishing out a lot of the... A little bit of side jabs to everybody. And I wouldn't say he was like full method, but what the documentary said is he was like that off screen to other people too, because he wanted to get under, under people's skin to like. Oh, that he was interesting. This, he's like a little know, bit of, not a trickster, but like a little bit of a troublemaker. Yeah, troublemaker. He's a little entitled yeah. um, to like, you know, they're, the, the first time we meet him, they're arguing about getting a bigger cut. I mean, like, I wanted kind a of full thing. share. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> so um, off screen, Jerry Goldsmith uh, does the score, which I think is one of those beautiful sci-fi or horror soundtracks of all time. Yeah. But apparently him and Ridley did not get along. Uh, Goldsmith had a lot of trouble getting Ridley's vision right of what Ridley wanted. Took a long time to get that music just how it is today. But Hmm. uh, he's very diplomatic in the documentary as well. He's not, he doesn't throw Ridley under the bus too much. I would say compared to some other movies, it's a very understated soundtrack. Like it's not like, I know the theme, like a Star Wars, right? The John Williams scores, you know, it's not like that, but it's very suiting for this movie, of course. Oh, it's so haunting. It's so good. Uh, so the movie gets made, and it's time to shop it out there and get it out. And I love this little, um, you know, the marketing team is trying to sell it to other marketing, to studios, and people to advertise it. What do we call this thing, Benny? Exactly. And so they tell people, it's like Jaws, but in space. Jaws in space. Which I, which I freaking, which I kind of wish that movie had gotten made, Jaws in space. I mean, is is that Sharknado? Did Sharknado ever go to space? I think they did end up in space by the end, I mean, there are so many of those movies. Where else would you go? If someone could write in and confirm that for us, we'll read it on the next episode. Thank you. Thank you. 
Ah, so the movie premieres May 15th, 1979. And the public reaction to this is awesome. So there's an anecdote that an usher fainted during the movie. Just boom. Didn't people run away from the screen? Some people ran out of the theater and then vomited in the lobby or in the bathroom out of just what they had seen on screen. Wow. But yeah, some people, one of the team members of the movie talks about he went to one of the premieres and he sees people get up and run to the back of the theater. And he goes, oh my God, I can't believe people are leaving. And he looked back and it's just the people in the front row didn't want to be that close to the screen (laughs) with what was happening. And they stand in the back of the theater to watch the rest of the movie, which is awesome. That's amazing. These visceral reactions. (laughs) Yeah. But where I want to bring it home, I want to bring it all back to Dan O'Bannon. It's premiere day of Alien. He's still, he's very salty about all this. He talks in the documentary that he wasn't even allowed to watch the dailies because they're like, those are for the chief writers on the movie. You can't watch these. He goes for this rage drive. On premiere day, he just goes to drive around Hollywood, just angry at everything. And he's driving by the Egyptian theater in Hollywood, and there is a line around the block. And he sees Alien on the marquee. And he goes, oh my god, that's to see Alien. And how he describes the story is he's almost like in this dreamlike trance, where it feels unreal to him that these people are lined up at the Egyptian theater to see the movie that he originally concepted. So he parks, and he goes and gets in line to go watch Alien. And he's going into the theater... And his executive producer buddy, Ron, tracks him down and they sit near each other. And Dan, as he describes it, cries through most of the movie. Wow. Just emotional watching the audience react around him and people like cheering and applauding or screaming. Or as he describes it, for most of the movie, people just sat there with their jaws open, unblinking at this thing they'd never seen before. And he's deeply moved. He had a bit of a catharsis then. Exactly. That's good. I'm glad he got that. And I empathize, man. Like, I have done a lot of professional writing in my career, and it's really hard to separate yourself personally. Sure. When people start to edit it, and you've got to get this thing ready for, you know, the public. It's really hard not to take those edits personally. So I get that he's super salty about it. But at the end of the day, you're like, oh, look at this beautiful thing we made together. This is great. That's my run through of the movie history. What did I miss? You did an amazing job. I had a few other pieces I just wanted to throw in there because they felt very fitting for a couple reasons. One thing that O'Bannon said is that he borrowed an idea for this from a previous script, and that script was of gremlins infesting (gasps) a bomber during World War II. That's awesome! And I was like, oh my God, we talked about that in Gremlins. I never knew that. That's great. The other thing I just have to mention is because I, I love it so much is the lore of H.P. Lovecraft. Oh. Because the DNA of Lovecraft is all over this movie, particularly Mm. in H.R. Giger's artwork. Oh, my God. For those of you who don't know Lovecraft, he basically created the genre of cosmic horror. This Mm. idea that there is a horror from beyond, let's say outer space, often an ancient horror that we don't fully comprehend, and to merely look upon this horror would drive you mad or kill you instantly. No, yeah. And, you know, a lot of what this, you know, with the alien and this kind of ancient creature that we don't fully understand or comprehend, there's just a lot of that to the the kind of backstory that is told visually, but not in words throughout this entire movie and throughout this entire franchise, really. So that part I thought was really great. And of yeah. course, Necronomicon is a book that Lovecraft created for the universe that he had that sort of, it's sort of the explanation uh, behind what's going on. And so the fact that he called it Necronomicon is a very specific nod to Lovecraft. So I They're thought that was like great. Kindred souls, like Giger Lovecraft right. for sure. <laughs> 
I have a couple more pieces, Ben. I think they might fit well during our discussion in chemistry, so I'm going to save them. That's a good call because I'm getting a page from science officer Ash. He has something in the lab that he wants us to come take a look at. And I think we should answer his his, uh, message. Okay, let's do it. Where do we start? Where do we start? Well, I just want to say Ian Holm had the most deadpan, serial killery look on his face throughout that entire movie. At first, you just don't know why, and then it becomes readily apparent something's going on. But much like this entire movie, it is a slow build to what you find out Ash is up to. Oh, yeah. Spoilers, it ain't good. It's not good. (laughs) And the message that Ripley finally reads about what the true nature of that mission was. Terrifying. Collect a sample. Priority above all else. Crew expendable. Like, crew expendable is such Uh. a dark twist and i mean a lot of the movie and the whole series that comes after it are these commentary on corporate and greed you know what Wayland yutani is willing to do sure but, but in the current world but to like see that revelation that like the company is willing to kill everybody on the ship to bring back this alien specimen that they knew that there was this like parasitic host on the planet is almost just as horrifying as the actual xenomorph itself well and just the the simple flip of they get it and they think it's an sos so they move in closer it's a rescue mission. we got to find out what's going on. Sure, some of the crew members are against it, but they're like, hey, we're le- kind of legally bound. Yeah. Like we're contractually obligated. And so you think it's a rescue mission of some kind. And when you find out after they're on the planet and half the crew already starts going into this thing that it, I think Ash is one who basically is like, it might be a warning, not an SOS. You're yeah. just like, what is going like, to happen what next? What, what is happening if? next? Oh, my God. You did mention something that I think is a great start, is that this movie is such a slow burn. Yeah. The opening sequence is one of my favorites of a film all time. Just this slow pan around this dead ship, and then people wake up. It's six minutes without dialogue. Is it that long? Six minutes. Wow. With no dialogue. And if you think that's long without dialogue, the last 17 and a half minutes have no dialogue of Ripley running around trying to save the cat and blow up the ship and get off. So that I could see because, yeah, by the time the – and I forgot that the last two that die, it's a Cartwright and um, Parker. They both get killed right around the same time. Yeah. And then you're right. It's just her. And the xenomorph itself only think, I think only has like four minutes of screen time. Oh, I thought Total. you said only had like four lines of dialogue where he's like, right. oh, what's going on here, guys? Mind if I kill you? That's, yeah, okay. if, he, if the xenomorph spoke, that's exactly what he would that's say. 100%. That's what he would sound like, 100%. The movie is so many slow pans or really long one shots yeah. that just keep it real dreadful and slow and claustrophobic. Which I, I, I think was still at that time not fully typical, but it just feels even less typical than now. I feel like the pace of movies yeah. across the span of time, faster, faster, faster. Now we got a lot of jump cuts and zip here and boom there. And like the camera's always moving. And for this to be so slow and deliberate, I don't know. Like it, it, it's not something you think about, but it definitely builds into that sense of dread. Nothing moves fast. Even as the ship is flying by at the beginning, it's slow. I feel like now it'd be like... Like, you know, be flying oh, yeah. past at a really quick pace. Or even when the Nostromo undocks from the platform, you know, you'd think like, like it does yeah. this really fast ascent into the planet and it just sort of slowly lumbers down. 
Which, A, I love that design element because I guess that was a new thing, too, where the ship was originally supposed to dock like a shuttle does with the ISS, but they designed that claw to come out and then open up and drop it, which yeah. was new. Yeah. I thought that was a cool idea. And you talk about the long pan of the ship. I wonder if that's a little inspiration from A New Hope, too, which starts with a long, slow pan underneath a Star Destroyer. And it's certainly the inspiration for Spaceballs. <laughs> We're going to talk a lot of Spaceballs in chemistry. But the slow Spaceball one that never oh seems my God, to stop it goes going forever. It's so good. <laughs> you know, speaking of influencers, too, I know this predated Ghostbusters, but as someone who loves Ghostbusters very much, this is another movie I feel like about, like, Blue Collar. You know, the Ghostbusters are supposed to, at the end of the day, be exterminators. Yeah. That's the whole inspiration when Dan wrote it. And it makes it more relatable. Like, these are people similar. You could find yourself in a similar sort of happenstance, and that that makes it just more tragic. The relatability and the specificity, I think, really matters. You're right. Like, if this was astronauts daring do out in space, I don't think it has the same effect. If they're professionals and... What I mean by that, I guess, is like they're highly trained uh, Marines, they're highly trained astronauts, they're highly trained scientists like Star Trek, where they're off on a, you know, we're on a mission of peace and exploration. No, they are truckers in space doing a job yeah. and expecting to get paid for this dirty, right. long <laughs> job where they're sacrificing huge chunks of their life. And just the fact that I know it's never mentioned, they only call it the company here, but like apparently Wayland Yutani, the emblem is on stuff in some of the shots. Yeah, yeah. But just the fact that it's a named company, like that adds just a little more specificity. And then you you match that with the lived in look and the fact that there's tensions among the crew. They're not all like buddy, buddy. Like as far as I could tell, I don't think any of them were friends. They just felt like we're here together and we have a job to do. Well, and it's funny you say that. There was originally a sex scene written for Scarrett and Weaver. Uh, Dallas and, really? and Ripley were supposed to have sex in the movie. Oh. And it was Scarrett who pushed back. And he's like, I think that weakens Sigourney's character. I don't think this adds anything to the story. That's a great call. Because it's another trope you see in all these slasher movies from the time or horror movies of like, uh, they demonize sex. If you have sex, you're definitely going to get killed. Yeah. So they're like, nah, let's just get rid of that. Which I thought was great. I thought it was brilliant. Totally unnecessary. Yeah. So, Ben, I wanted to ask you, uh, yes. when did you first see Alien? Uh, I'm so glad you asked that because I forgot to write it in my show notes. Way too early. I was single digits old when I saw Alien. I mean, you also watched Unsolved Mysteries late at night on your little That's true, but TV this was, VCR combo. So. This was way before that little guy. <laughs> Probably like eight or nine, I think. When okay. I usually tell okay. the story, I'm nine in the story. It's somewhere around there. And I remember my dad showed it to me, watched in the basement, and it haunted me throughout the rest of my childhood for one reason and one reason only. As you remember, the first character who gets killed by the full-grown xenomorph after it's on the ship. Yes. The cat gets scared and runs away, which yeah. I, I'm going to come back to how they made the cat scared. But it runs away and they're all looking for the cat. So Brett, the engineering tech, is he walks into this very... I don't know. It looks like where a rave would be set or like some music video for corn. I'm so glad you said that, Ben. I tried so hard to figure out what that room was. I've tried to tell myself that the water dripping off is like condensation on some sort of cooling system, maybe. Now, in the director's cut, what I've been told is that when he's in that room before the alien attacks him, you can see the alien suspended up in the chains. It's in a ball. And then it uncurls from the chains and gets him. Because remember, that guy did yoga and tai chi. Right. In the theatrical cut, originally, you you don't see it until it's right behind him. At any rate, it's raining water in there. 
And then the alien comes down from there. Well, my childhood bathroom had an inset skylight. And I swear to God, almost like the time I was 18, almost every time I took, because I always took evening showers, yeah. it was dark in there, is I would flip the light on around the corner, and then I would have to look up in the skylight to make sure it wasn't going to uncurl from the skylight in the shower and kill me. Okay, so this haunted your every day, yes! your oh daily life. Oh my God, I thought about that movie through my whole childhood from that one scene. Wow. When were you first exposed to this masterpiece? Well, I'm going to blow your mind in the opposite direction. I think I first saw Alien. I'm going to say the same thing for Aliens. Okay. Actually, I'm going to say for all, the entire franchise. Sure. I've actually not seen them until very recently, within the last, uh, I'm going to say six years. This wow. is where I finally sat down, and I love them, and I don't understand why I didn't watch them for so long. But I finally did, and yeah, it's a brilliant movie. Awesome. 1979. It's as old as I am. If you told me, Chris, there's this indie movie that was made in the spirit of the 80s, it was made last year, I'd probably believe you. Yeah. The way it's shot, the filmography of it is, it feels so timeless. Just the lived in world is so good. And Star Trek is exactly what you hit on the head, where so much sci-fi before then had been so clean and polished and smooth. And it felt like this future world without problems, without conflict, without dirt. Yeah. And like, <laughs> and no like dust. <laughs> right. But then like Star Wars, Alien, Blade Runner are yeah. all like, no. It, yep. the, you walk around major metropolises today or you go around industrial vehicles and there's grime and there's dirt and there's grease and there's bumper stickers and there's little things hanging from the rear view light that you've connected while you drive around. Yeah. Like it feels such a real tactile world. I love it so much. Well, speaking of the ship, I wanted to say – One of the pieces I I carried over from history is the name Nostromo. Do you know where that came from? (gasps) I don't. So it came from a novel by Joseph Conrad. Joseph Conrad did Heart of Darkness and tons of other things, right? So he wrote a novel called Nostromo. And he writes a lot of stories and novels, and many of them are in a nautical setting. Space. (gasps) Fantastic. And they depict trials of human spirit in the midst of what he saw as an impassive, inscrutable universe. It's not just a name they pulled out of thin air. It was purposeful, much, much like every other detail in this movie. But I love the foil to that. Do you remember the name of the escape pod? Narcissus. Narcissus, which is this Greek, uh, you know, uh, tale of learning of this guy who fell in love with his own beauty so much that he kept looking at a reflection in a pond and he fell in and drowned himself. But it's all about being in love with yourself. So I love that there's a narcissus is like, this is all about you. You got in the ship first. Get out of here. Forget everybody else. I love Go, that name. It's so good. One of the millions of things that makes this movie so great and revolutionary is it flips the script on like the classic trapped in a house with a killer movie. Like when you watch one of those movies, what is the most common thing you're thinking or yelling at the person running around the house on the screen? Don't go in there. Why are you doing that? Stop talking so loud. All those things, right? Right. And the hallmark, get out of there. Oh, sure. Get, get out. Get out of the house. An alien says, there is no outside of the house. You are stuck here. And then what's even scarier is you can't shoot it because it bleeds acid. Right. And so if you shoot it, it eats through the hall and everybody gets sucked out into space. So it's like, how do we kill the unkillable and we can't run away from it? It's so good. Just that whole scene where they keep chasing the acid down and it drops through every single deck. Right. And they're like running to make sure, like down the ladders to make sure like, oh God, is it going to go all the way through? Ah." Yeah. Ugh. 
But of course, flipping that script, copywriter Barbara Gipps comes up with the tagline, In space, no one can hear you scream. Oh, so good. So another quick scene that got cut is in the end when Ripley's running around, she's trying to get off. She encounters, in a cutscene, Dallas, glued up to the wall with like alien spit. And we learn about this a lot in Aliens, right? The sequel, where we learn like... The aliens are actually drones that are bringing people to a hive, and they glue them to the wall, and facehugger eggs can impregnate them. Yeah. In the theatrical cut of Alien originally, that was never explored or explained. Yeah. There's, in the again, director's cut. She encounters Dallas. Dallas is dying. Says, kill me. She tortures him with the flamethrower. But again, it was Skerritt who came in, and he was like, this kills the pace. You're having her run around the ship trying to get off, and then she stops to have a conversation with Dallas? Come on. Uh, so that's why I got cut. And I think it works because, yeah, it would have explained more, but it's one of those things where it's like, much like the characters, you don't want to show too much of the alien. Like, you just want to show enough. And Ridley had this great quote. He said, The most important thing in a film of this type is not what you see, but the effect of what you think you saw. Yeah, that's a great quote. That is brilliant. And it's so true. And it's my chief complaint of a lot of horror movies is that they try to show or explain too much. Yeah. And what I love about that, man, Scarrett is on the ball with this stuff. Right? Wow. Good job, Tom. Like twice he's like dropping truth bombs and he's right. <laughs> it's so great. It. You don't need to know that part. And there was a better way, unbeknownst to them, to explain that in Aliens when they introduced the queen, right? And then you can see yeah. how that happens. You don't need to reveal all your cards. Of course, they didn't know that at the time. But, wow, did that work out perfectly. Absolutely, absolutely. So you're going to love this because now I have no chronological order. I'm going to jump around with just random trivia I found that I thought was super fascinating about the movie. Well, Ben, I wanted to... Uh, we've been sort of dancing around this, and there's, there's two reasons I want to talk about this real quick. Because you mentioned xenomorph, which, again, is a word that does not show up <laughs> in right. this movie. I don't yeah. even... I meant to look up the origin of where xenomorph came from. I feel like it was in, like, a comic book. Or a side novel. Xenomorph. I don't know if any of the mainstream movies ever call them xenomorphs. I'm not really sure. That's a good so I'm question. I'm kind of curious. You know, it's know. always alien. It's a great point. But the life cycle, because I use oh, yeah. alien life cycle as a way to talk about how the gremlin mogwai life cycle horrified me. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Back in our gremlins right. episode. Just the idea that, you know, first you have this egg. You know, the leathery, and it's got that kind of like almost a mouth on the top, almost like the petals of a Venus flytrap. They just kind of open up. Mm-hmm. And then you see this like nasty viscera inside. If I may add to the viscera, Please. you'll notice that there's, if you watch an alien, you see there's actually liquid coming vertically off the egg into the air. Okay. And it's because they shot the egg opening upside down to have liquid drip off of it and make it creepy when showed right side up. Uh, It worked. It worked. Right. And then you have the face hugger come out, which, as you mentioned, it's like these long fingers. It's like a, what would you call it? Like a crab meets a manta ray meets a scorpion. Giga likes to say, I always thought human hands were very creepy. So I wanted the legs of the face hugger to be human hands is kind of what he's like. Please tell me he talks like that. Oh, it's like like dead on. I can't even get as creepy as him. I also just (laughs) want to point out, before it jumps out of the egg, in Alien, you see it flutter and twitch inside the egg. That was a fantastic effect. Those are director Ridley Scott's hands in dishwashing gloves, backlit, just just fluttering to make it happen. (laughs) I thought that was amazing. What a touch. Oh, my goodness. Right. So sorry. And and he was using palm olive, so he did not have dishpan hands. (laughs) 
Okay, so you have the, the finger-like scorpion, and like I said, it rams its ovipositor down your face hole. And that's the creepy thing with Kane when that first happens is you think he's dead. Like, they're trying to figure out what to do. It's on his face, like the suffocating look of that just looks crazy. And then they're like, well, there's like a tube that's supplying oxygen. And you think he's alive. And then Ash is like, he's the original vague booker. He's like, something's changed. What's happening? It's probably best you come down to the science laboratory and find out. I'm like, you vague-looking jerkstore monster android. He did it twice. And the second time you run down there, Kane's sitting up. He's kind of laughing. He's making a little joke. Right. And you think everything's okay. And then they're having their fun, chatty dinner. Maybe even the most fun this crew's ever going to have together because Kane's alive. Well, not for long. Because he's not choking on dinner. There's a chest burster about to rip forth from his rib cage. Now, I want to sideline you again here, too, because there's a common myth that this whole crew didn't know what was about to happen to Kane. Okay. And that is not true. They only didn't know how much blood was going to come out and which direction it was going to go. When you say crew, you don't mean the character crew. Right, you sorry, mean the, the actor crew. Right. Okay. Right. So originally, they, they did kind of want to try and surprise him. But they couldn't get the chest burster to rip the shirt so okay. on, the, on the puppet. Yeah. So they got it to come through the skin and like it started to bleed out a little bit. But they couldn't get it to rip the shirt. So they had to cut, get a new shirt, clean it all up, cut it a little bit. And then when it came out, it was a ton of blood. And Cartwright's reaction, who has one of the best reactions in the scene, everybody reacts credibly. Right. But Cartwright loses it. And it really is because of the amount of blood. And it like hits their faces. There's so much blood. That's a great scene, and I'm not going to lie. As soon as that little chest burster came out, I sang, Hello, my baby. Hello, oh, my honey. Yes, yes, <laughs> speaking, yes. Speaking of space balls. Right, and it just flies off the table. Oh, so good. But anyway, so and then he just, the little chest burster, and then just kind of runs across the table. Yeah. And then I was expecting another stage. Oh, no. The next time you see it... Yeah, it grows very fast. As you mentioned, Brett, the engineer, is in that weird room. We don't know what it is. Some sort of dungeon. Right. (laughs) And he finds the molting. And I'm thinking, like, we're going to find an adolescent. Right. Xenomorph. Oh, no. This thing, in the span of minutes, is... Seven feet tall. Right. Which I think Alien 3 comes back to and revisits a little better. Like, it does grow up much slower in Alien 3. Yeah. But quick little fun fact there, too. Like I said, you know, they're looking for Jones the Cat. They open a locker, and then it runs away, and everyone's yeah, yeah, looking yeah. for Jones oh, the Cat. yeah, yeah, yeah. What they did to make that cat so angry, they had the cat in one container, and then they slid up this box with a sliding screen on the front so the cat couldn't see what was on Inside the box. Okay. Ridley Scott says, action. And they open the sliding film door, and it's a full-size German shepherd. What? And the cat just goes, and that's how they got the shot for Jones being scared and angry. That's just mean. I'm not a fan of cats, but that's mean. Poor Jonesy. Poor Jonesy. So that's just what I want to talk about was a life cycle, but also, I just have to say... I was reading about the, you know, there's great practical effects in this movie. It's incredible. The things that they used <laughs> to recreate these very visceral scenes is, I don't know how anyone, speaking of people in the theaters running out and vomiting, I don't know how the actors weren't running out and vomiting. I have, so the, I have a list, but you go and I'll try to fill in the yeah. gaps. So I mentioned the, like, the viscera inside the egg when it opens, right? Yeah. What, what was that, Ben? 
fresh cattle hearts and stomachs from a local butchery, and the tube for the face hugger that comes out, you know, to impregnate his sheep intestine. My goodness. I mean, it, it achieves the desired effect. We talked about, uh, in Sledgehammer episode, we talked about the rotting fruits and vegetables of oh, yeah. the screen that Peter Gabriel was under. Pales in comparison to how much this stuff had to well, have stopped. And I thought that was a great parallel because I read that a lot of these shots with this stuff was shot quickly because it was rotting under the hot set lights, just like Sledgehammer. The other thing, Ben... So there's a great shot when the alien's up close, the full adult alien is like, and you see its jaws, and then the little inside jaw mouth comes out. It's just all of this like thick dripping saliva. What is that, Ben? It is more than you could ever measure KY jelly all over that side. All the KY jelly. Can you imagine someone's like, get me several bushels of KY jelly. (laughs) It's amazing. I mean, it looked great. I did not know what that's what it was, but I was like, it achieved, again, the desired effect. Um, part of the alien's head. Did you see this? There's part of a human skull in there? Right in the front. A real cast or a real human skull. Oh, a cast. I think so. I don't th- I don't know if it's a real skull. I hope I you are remember. correct. I hope you're correct. And then this is not the aliens, but another practical effect. Of course, after they find out Ash is awful. Yeah. Parker smashes him across the head. Yeah. The head comes off. Innards going everywhere. That was milk, pasta, and caviar. Yeah. For the innards of the android. And they said they they just had to keep filling his mouth with milk (laughs) between every shot because when he first talks, it bubbles out. Yeah, 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 yeah. A couple more disgusting things to point in there. Oh, please. So the the half-alien-built tunnels on the flying croissant that crashes on LV, I forget the number, LV-147 or something. Uh, Those are bones from a slaughterhouse. From a cattle slaughterhouse. Oh. Those are real bones in those hallways. And Giger talks about, like, when they arrived on sets, the smell was overwhelming. <laughs> I love that. And then one of my favorite shots, and actually this is something I knew before trying to do the research here. When Ash is dissecting the facehugger on the table in yeah. the lab, they had run down to, like, an open-air market that afternoon. And to make the organs of the facehugger, that is a combination of fresh shellfish Four oysters and a sheep kidney. Oh my goodness. Uh, which also, under heavy lights, was just baking Nasty. on set. And they're like, I don't know how many takes they did, but I hope it was single digits. I feel like everybody had to have that stuff that you put on your upper lip, under your nostrils, yes. that like coroners use so they don't smell like the rotting cadaver yes. or whatever. My goodness. And of course, eventually it gets blown out the airlock. So that's for the life cycle. Yeah. That's, you know, that's the conclusion that's, that's of the, the life cycle. The and not just blown out the airlock, it tries to crawl into the yeah, what engine. A dumb, what an idiot. What and a then just gets alien. incinerated. You fried alien. xenomorph for dinner. What's great is your story helped blend a lot of the fun facts I want to do. I just have a, a few more that I would love to hit. And what I'd like to also do is if there's any big moments we really enjoyed from the movie. Oh, yeah. Okay, good. What else you got, Ben? I should have said this at the top of your life cycle. Okay. But when they find the egg chamber uh, on the ship, God, um, so I can just say it. What are those guys called? Like, who were the pilots? Space jockeys. I mean, yeah. they're engineers. They're engineers. called engineers. They have many names. So what we later come to find is the engineer's ship. Uh, when they find the egg chamber, those blue laser lights are kind of right over the film. And we should say the engineer is like the fossilized skeleton they find in that big chamber, right? Yeah. And it's like, it almost looks like an elephant 
skeleton, right? Sure. I'll, yeah. So we'll talk about the space jockey, and then I'll come back to the lasers. Oh, so the okay. Space, okay the space jockey, right, is this giant, huge set piece. And Fox, when they saw the price, they're like, "No, this is you're going to use this for one short shot." Right. It's massive. If this was your ship, you were going to use the whole movie. Great, but it's too expensive. And uh, art conceptual artist Ron Cobb begged and pleaded, like, you have to leave this in because this is the shot that will tell people this is not a B science fiction movie, that this is a real movie. Yeah. Uh, he called it the Cecil B. DeMille shot, is you have to keep it in. So it's 26 feet tall. And to make it even feel even bigger when you see the uh, truckers walking around it when they discover it, it's actually Ridley Scott's two sons who are little kids in spacesuits to make yeah. it even bigger. And shortly after filming, it was burned down because somebody left a burning cigarette on it. Oh. And it torched down. It's an amazing shot. Yeah. Ron, fantastic idea. Huge. I think there's something about that. I don't know if it's the specificity, the atmosphere, the whatever, the fact that this was an actual ship with a crew that, again, yeah, we don't exactly. fully understand what this thing is. And it's not the only alien, of course, as we come to find out. Oh, it's just so good. Yeah, I, I think it. you hit it on the end that it's, there's just so much mystery with it. There's yeah. a little, that like, you get a touch of, it's like finding a hidden temple in the Amazon jungle. Like, there's yeah. a hint that something happened here, but the creature's much bigger than the humans, and its chest is exploded. There's a hole in its chest That's before right. it kills Hurt. That's right. So you're like, oh, what is going on here? It's great. Mm. Blue laser lights. Blue laser lights. Soundstage next to this one, uh, The Who. The band The Who was practicing for a big show, and uh, that's where they borrowed the lights from. Scott was like, you know what? I think the blue laser lights would be cool in this scene, and so they borrowed it from the Were who. they supposed to be like a barrier or force field? Man, that is a great question. I've always wondered that about the movie, because you've got like dry ice, mist fog, and then the blue yeah. lasers. So yeah, I'm wondering and if- And the like- eggs are underneath that layer, right. and Kane's character- addresses it he said there's some kind of i can't remember what he says like a layer or something and maybe it's not supposed to be described and maybe they didn't even have an idea of what it was but to me it always felt like it was some kind of barrier preserving the eggs because i don't know how long they've been sitting there but it feels like a really freaking long time and they haven't opened until he touches one of them i don't know i just thought that maybe the touch is what did it but no that's a great call just like the other question that we had if any of you out there have like geegers like necronomicon and know the answer of what the blue laser lights are supposed to do or he's on your speed dial and you can just be like just call him up (laughs) 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 yeah exactly my only like little fun easter egg which i think is really cool is when Narcissus drops from Nostromo to leave and Ripley's getting everything ready to leave. Yeah. The screen flashes environmental control purge. Uh, and if you look really closely, the same exact message pops up in one of the police cars in Blade Runner, also directed by Ridley Scott. <laughs> nice. uh, when it's like landing. It was just a little tribute. Because the environmental control purge is like not a thing. So uh, they're just using the movies, which is good. Well, you know what else also about that ending? The final duel between Ripley and the Xenomorph when she's on Narcissus, that was added later. Oh, really? The movie was supposed to end with her getting away and leaving. And you kind of get that false ending, right? Where you're like, oh, she made it out. She's starting to get into the sleep process. She's taking off her clothes. She's about ready to get into the chamber. And then what does she see? A movement or something, right? Like that part was added later. Yeah. And then another crazy pitch that Ridley wanted... And thank God it didn't happen. He was like, what if the alien made the final log entry in Ripley's voice? So he wanted Ripley to die. The alien kills her. 
And then the reveal, I guess, is that it can mimic human speech. And what what would that log entry sound like? <laughs> Our hearts ripple, everybody. Totally alive. You know, because that's how they talk. That's right. Yeah. I just like, totally alive. Our heart ripple. Superhuman oh, here. I'm so good cat <laughs> that I totally haven't eaten. I'm a, I am a human feminoid. Is that what we're called? Anyway. <laughs> Totally alive. Oh, I need that version. I need the Ripley cut. I need that. Terrible idea. I'm so glad they shot that down. Like oh that would have been, think of the direction the franchise would have gone in if these things could like mimic human well, speech. What we're going to get into, I might be happier with that direction okay. than how some of these have gone. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> I have something I really want to end chemistry with because it's a great bridge in a contemporary okay. culture, but I want to okay. go to your like favorite sequence scene question thing first. I mentioned the whole like flip of this is not a distress call. It's a warning. The whole scene where it zooms out and you see this giant fossilized space jockey, the engineer, right? Which again, it's never called any of those things in the movie. When you just see all the eggs there and you're like, what on earth have we stumbled into? Uh, Face hugger wrapping around. Oh, that's the other thing too. It's not only on his face, it starts wrapping around his neck. Oh, yeah. And as a defense mechanism almost, it starts to strangle him a little bit. Oh, yeah. When they try and pull it off, it tightens a little bit when they try Uh, to cut the leg. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And then, of course, the other big one is Mother reveals the true mission. And then you just see Ripley's like exasperated and she sits back and you see Ash. Ash. Right next to her. Waiting for it. And then that whole sequence. And then, of course, him getting his head knocked off and you find out he's an android. Oh, it's so good. There's a lot more, but those were just the moments that I was like, classic, amazing, beautiful. I love this movie top to bottom. And the only scene that we haven't talked about that's like a big temple scene for me is what follows when the crew decides that the alien is moving through the air ducts on the ship and that Dallas as the captain chooses to go with an ad hoc flamethrower and go look for it. Mm. And it is a slow, haunting, creepy scene where you have these circular doors. So they choose so that he can corner it. They're going to close every door behind him as he moves through the air shafts. Yeah. And it's this incredible sound effect that's like wet, grindy metal. Oh, it's, it's, like, <sighs> it's, it's almost like Freddy Krueger's nails on metal. Yeah. Like, oh. It's shot so well that you just see him disappear behind every door in this little peephole. It kind of closes up like a sphincter almost. Yes. <laughs> <It's> just, <laughs> right, which is what we're all doing watching during the scene uh-huh. is we're all puckering. That is and, you know, he's got limited true. fuel and he has almost no light and he's shooting the flame to try and see and he sticks his hand in some goo on the ground and the whole tone changes when he radios back that he's like, you know what? I'm uncomfortable. I think I want to get out of here and the music starts to pick up mm. and then bang, it's just right there, right behind him. Oh, uh-huh. that whole sequence is masterful. Oh my I love goodness. It. So the big elephant in the room that I really want to talk about. Not the big will- space jockey in the room. Not the, yeah, right. which kind of looks like an elephant. He's got like a trunk that's, that's like a hose on the mask. Yeah, exactly. For sure. So what's the big space jockey in the room? I want to talk about Sigourney Weaver. In the end, when she's suiting up and she's getting ready very carefully to try and kick the alien off Narcissus, she's singing to herself, you are my lucky star. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Which was her idea because she thought, oh, you know, maybe Ripley has this backstory where this song is a comforting song for her. Is that an actual song or did it's she make it up? a song. Okay. Because Ridley Scott complains about it a bunch. Because he got so much flack because it was incredibly expensive to get the rights to use that song. That she just sang in that shot and he put it in the final cut. And they're like, oh, God, that's a real song. We have to go pay for it. Yeah. And it was very expensive. 
Oh. But let's talk about Lieutenant Ellen Ripley slash Sigourney Weaver, sci-fi action hero. Mm-hmm. This is a huge, huge deal. And if you have ever watched a movie <laughs> made since 1980 or a TV show that has a butt-kicking female lead who saves the day, who not only writes, but passes and then grades the Bechtel test. It's, it's Sigourney Weaver's Ellen Ripley, who builds the bridge for all other women action heroes and superheroes after her, especially in the realm of sci-fi, largely dominated by male fandom. Well, and not just her. The last three characters are women yeah. and people of color, right? Yeah, like, absolutely. It's very atypical for movies of that time. That they're, It's usually like, you know, the token characters, if you will. Those are the ones that get it first. Yeah. The intentionality of flipping some of the script, like, you know, this is going to be a symbol for, like, sexual assault and it has to be a man. I think they were very intentional that these were the characters that, no, they don't all survive, but they're the ones who stick it out the longest. It seems very minor and maybe these days not as big of a deal, but I just feel like for its time especially, a little bit ahead of its time and and willing to do something that's not just the status quo, standard, formulaic thing. I'll go out there and say it wasn't a little bit ahead of its time. This was a giant leap. To have a female lead be this strong in sci-fi, in a horror, is huge. Maybe at some point we can talk about this more, but I do feel like horror is one of the areas where you do often have a female lead. That's true. That's actually very true. I think in action and sci-fi, it's unique in those two genres. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, to your point, this is quasi-horror or maybe it's fully horror movie. Um you know, it shares a lot of that same DNA. In in those, it's often, what is it, the last girl or last woman is what they kind of call yeah, it. Yeah, 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 yeah. There is a bit of that to it. Uh, but I take your point. For a very mainstream movie, it's not the norm. It's usually the Bruce Willis. It's usually right, the, the John Rambo, the whoever. Yeah. yeah. I think there are no shellfish. There are no sheep hearts. There's nothing left on the table to dissect here with Science Officer Ash. And I hope there's none of that at the lunch table today. No, because actually I'm allergic to most of those things. If I show up and there's tripe, yeah, tripe, exactly, and a glass of milk, gross. I'm gone. <laughs> so gross. It's disgusting. No, thank you. You know what, Ben? Lunch is on me. <laughs> Kenner presents you alien action figure. Alien action figure, new from Kenner. Okay, we can thankfully report they were like rehydrated food rations, but nary nary a cow heart in sight. So that's a bet. I don't have a single hive on my body from shellfish. That's really good. Yeah, and I I avoided the eggs. I was not going to eat any eggs uh, at that (laughs) lunch line. So so we could do several episodes on what I'm about to say, but I'm just going to try and keep it high and tight. This spawned a very long series of movies. There's, of course, the sequel, James Cameron's Aliens. There's Alien 3, Alien Resurrection, which I would say in those three movies, the character Ripley continues to get tougher and tougher and tougher as she goes along in each one. Uh, Then much more recently, Ridley Scott comes back and does Prometheus and Covenant. But then you also have these companions, Aliens vs. Predator 
and Aliens vs. Predator 2. Yes. Real quick, high and tight, maybe give us like the elevator pitch. How do you feel about the series of movies that came afterwards? It's a mixed bag. Uh, for me personally, love aliens, you know, space marines. It's more bombastic. It's more fighting. It's a little more uh, pulpy, right? Uh, but I love it. I feel like it expands the universe in a great way. All I have to say is Ripley in a power loader oh fighting god. an alien queen. Oh my god. I think it's a great movie. Again, it's a different tone, but I, I love it very much. Uh, the series, to me, kind of goes off the deep end after that. And I think Alien versus Predator is actually, it's a low-budget movie, yeah. but it's actually pretty well done. Yeah. It's a lot like, to me, Freddy versus Jason. It's way better than you think it's going to be. And you're like, wow, this is actually, it makes sense. Yeah. It's for the most part well done. And I have not seen the second Alien versus Predator, but I have oh it on God. authority from every person who has. Do not waste your time. Oh, my God. There are a few movies that I would say don't watch, but Aliens vs. Predator 2 is one. I think I've described it to you before. It's like if the Hallmark Channel tried to make an alien movie. Like, it takes place think- in a <laughs> suburb. On an earthen suburb, it takes place. It's, it's terrible. Look, if Jason can go to Manhattan, by golly... Predators and aliens can go to the suburbs. They can go to the suburbs. Yeah, I mean, it does introduce the Predalien, you know, where an alien gets in a Predator. (laughs) Oh, my God. I'm right there with you. Aliens is also one of my favorite movies of all time. Yeah. It's remarkable because it's in the same franchise, but it's a completely different story. A completely different tone. It's an action movie, but it's awesome. And I agree. The Power Loader versus Queen on the on the landing deck it's one of the coolest action sequences ever made and it's also terrifying because against all odds ripley makes it back she's going through the whole thing and then you know the ordeal she went through and then you find out they have started to colonize the very place yeah, she barely right. escaped and you're from like, oh, no! i'm sorry there's families living there again we're probably going to do that movie so i'll stop talking but again right. so good Alien 3, I don't think it deserves the flack that it gets, but I enjoy it. It's not as great, not nearly as great as the other ones, but it's interesting. You know what? I might actually like it better if it didn't try to digitize the alien. If they yeah. just Does went... Does not age well. Does no, age it well. looks terrible. And it's not as menacing. There's something to be said about either practical effects, be that a person in a suit or puppets or however they did it in the second movie. I actually don't know, yeah. but they're practical and they look real. And I think... The special effects alien really took me out of that story even more. I agree. That's a very good point. Uh, Resurrection is very 90s. It tries to be really deep. It's like the Reddit thing, like, I'm 14 and this is deep or whatever. (laughs) It tries to go deep and it misses the mark. Makes some terrible choices. But Ron Perlman's in it. And um, Stranger Things. Who's the mom in Stranger Things? I love that your reference to Winona Ryder is Stranger Things. Yeah, right. Winona she's Ryder's from in it. Beetlejuice. She's, yeah, she's like all over the 80s. Come on. Well, that's, that's the most recent no, 80s No, it's thing. true. It's true. So she's great in it. Uh, Sigourney Reaver really does shoot a no-look behind-the-back three-pointer in it. She pulls it off for really, which is cool. Prometheus and Covenant are uh, kind of over my head. I'm not going to lie. I didn't really enjoy either of them. I did not see Prometheus because I heard it was so bad. But for me, I did go see Covenant. It looks beautiful. It's shot well. The thing I struggled with that one is, again, it was CG effect aliens. And there's a thousand of them. Yeah, right. And there's something to be said about a single monster you're trying to get rid of or a small group of them. But when it's like this herd of them running across the the temple landscape and it's just there's something that gets lost in that it just it takes you out of the realism of well because it. it almost feels like campy and silly kind of like the end of gremlins 
where it's an army of them down the street. And you're like, well, it's kind of funny, but also scary, but kind of yeah. silly. Yeah. And then I'm right there with you with AVP. I feel like it's a fun summer popcorn movie. Yeah. And it reveals some cool lore. Like, yeah. the predators have set up these hunting grounds on Earth over millennia to come hunt them. And there's a ritual around humans and facehuggers. I don't know. It's kind of fun. It is kind of fun. Yeah. That's for the movies. But you earlier mentioned a movie that took a very specific scene for a completely different effect. Ah, so Spaceballs, we all know. So the two things I think are direct alien homage. The one, of course, is when Spaceball 1 is flying by. It's that very, very long shot of the ship. And it just feels like they're making fun of the Nostromo flying by. And then the other one, of course, is the one, the only John Hurt makes a small cameo appearance in the space diner where he's eating lunch, starts to convulse, much like in the movie. The chest burster comes out and he goes, oh, no, not, not again. again. And then it runs out. And, of course, it gets into the whole, hello, my baby, hello, my honey, you know, right? with the, the little hat and the cane. Hilarious scene. I love that they got the same actor. He was totally game for it. So good. And of course, this is near the end. John Candy and Bill Pullman are in the diner to celebrate. They ask what John Hurt's having. They order the same thing. And then this happens. (laughs) And they have the soup. And then they're like, check, please. But I also love that John Hurt has the joke, oh, no, not again. Like he survived in Alien. Yeah. And he's back A little breaking the fourth wall. It's so good. It's a freaking great tribute. So other random like pop culture things, certainly like there are tons of video games that came out that are about aliens, some better than others. Actually, a lot of them are the Alien versus Predator franchise of games. Uh, Alien Colonial Marines was a travesty. I'm sorry if you worked on that, but it's terrible. Even before all these, if you played um, Turtles in Time, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Turtles in Time, a great arcade in Super Nintendo, yeah. there's a level where you're in the sewer on surfboards. And there's also a, one of the episodes uh, from the original cartoon series where it's like they're fighting like space monsters. They're 100% xenomorphs. Yeah, It's yeah. 100% the xenomorph model. It's just orange instead of black. But a few years ago, they came out with a game that I would say is the closest and best possible to the tone of the original movie. We are, of course, talking about Alien Isolation. I would call this video game Alien 3. Oh, yeah. It has the tone, it has the look, and the terror. I have never played a video game that was so frightening. And part of the beauty of it is the Alien AI. The way they've programmed it is to be unpredictable. So, you know, a lot of games, you know, oh, there's going to be this baddie around the corner. This is going to happen. There's like a trigger event or a location. Oh, no, dear friends. If you play this game and you die, the alien will not come out at the same spot. At the same time, it will never replicate itself again. You will spend 90% of that game cowering in a locker. It's creepy. It's so good. A random influence that we maybe haven't talked about. Uh, Giger designed a microphone stand for the band Korn. Okay. In 2001. And it's very xenomorphy. But it's that, again, it's that combination of like sexualized biomechanics. Yeah, yeah. But I remember as a kid singing that and I was like, oh my God, he's singing into a xenomorph woman. <laughs> uh, but it's sort of interesting of the time, which I thought was kind of cool. Of course, there's a bunch of board games. Most recently, we played by Protos Aliens vs. Predator, which is a wonderful homage, I would say, to the Aliens vs. Predator and the Aliens movies. It's a complicated game, but it is kind of fun to play. Yeah. The art is great. Uh, But you just played a spiritual successor as well this last weekend, right? There's a game called Nemesis. For licensing copyright reasons, it's totally not Aliens. But you are you are people who wake up out of cryo sleep on a ship that's totally not the Nostromo, and basically you have to work together. It's kind of a co-op, 
and you have to get to the bridge and you have to set the coordinates to make sure the ship's going to Earth and you have to make sure the engines are running and you all get back to cryo and you go into warp. Simple, right? Well, no, because aliens, which are totally not xenomorphs, totally start not spawning on the ship and the systems can break and every character has their own mission. And so you all have to do these things, but you have to rely that other people are telling the truth. But you don't have a lot of time because things are going crazy. The ship is malfunctioning. Go, go, go. And there's aliens spawning everywhere. Oh, it's so good. You feel the suspense. You feel the dread. It's every bit of spiritual successor. It's just totally not aliens for copyright reasons. Totally not aliens. <laughs> I can't wait to play that. That sounds really awesome. Now, I would say these were more influenced by aliens, but ever since the 80s, there have been so many novels and comic books yeah. based off of this world. When I was a, a young teen lad, uh, I enjoyed a lot of the novels. I read a bunch of the aliens novels back then. I think I have a couple kicking around here still in a box or something. I can't say they're fantastic, but they're still based on it. Sure. And there's a lot of comic series. Some of the comic series are recent. When the action figure line came out, each one came with a Dark Horse comic focused on that person or that type of alien they came out with. Mm. But uh, the novels had great cover art. It was, it was such like really expanded the lore. That was awesome. A few years ago, they did a, a comic book adaptation of the original Alien 3 script. So the whole mm. Alien 3 movie that we got, which was the male prison camp on Fury, I forget the number, Fury 997 or whatever. Uh, you know, in the original adaptation, Hicks and Newt actually survived the crash along with Ripley. And it's a whole different story, basically about warring companies trying to get a hold of the Xenomorph. Mm. I can't say it's necessarily better than the movie that came out. It's a, it's a different, weaker story than the first two movies. Sure. But anyway, big novel and comic. And the other entertainment spinoff that I really want to talk about that's like a direct descendant of all this, last December, FX announced an alien TV series. What? That will be set on Earth that will blend the alien and aliens property. So it's sort of, it's somewhere set between one and two or somewhere hmm. in one and two. Intrigued. Sir Ridley Scott is returning to produce. Okay. It's being uh, created by Noah Hawley. And I'm afraid to report he has basically the only thing he said publicly at a Comic-Con about the series is that it is not Ellen Ripley's story. But we're getting a TV series probably in 2022. I'm going to say it's probably very expensive to get Sigourney Weaver to star in a show. Unless you just avatar her and it's all CG and she's not even on screen. But also I appreciate that we're not going to have this whole handing off of the old guard to the new guard. This is such a tropey thing they do in oh Hollywood God. now yeah, 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 and in yeah. shows and movies and all that kind of stuff. And it's a longer form story. So if they can kind of build more than what you can do in a movie and they do it well, heck yeah. Oh yeah. Now, if you want to go see this, some of this stuff up close, man oh man is there a collection here in Seattle. If you go to the Museum of Pop Culture, Mopop, and you go to their horror gallery, there's a great collection from Alien in there. You've got a xenomorph, a full-sized, the upright xenomorph in there. You've got a face From the original? I think it's from Alien. I'm not... Okay. I don't, want, don't quote me. Okay. It is a full-size xenomorph. It's from one or two. I know the full-size facehugger they have is from number two, which is on display. So they've got Brett's baseball cap is on display there. They've got the makeshift flamethrower. Can I just say really quick, there's an amazing, subtle, but so visceral sound effect. When we talked about him, like the water splashing on him in that weird room, his ball cap when he puts his head down you can oh, you hear the hear it. Yeah. just the water drops hitting the bill of the hat 
And there was something so real about that moment. Oh, that was so the good. The sound design is brilliant in this movie. And you can go see that hat that got the rained there, on. That got right rained there. on. They've got the little models that they used for filming of both in the, the Nostromo and the rig, the refinery. And then they've got a Giger sketch for new alien eggs from Resur- Alien Resurrection, the fourth oh. one. But anyway, there's a lot of stuff at Mopop from Alien, which is cool to see. That's awesome. Other influences that you thought about that the Alien franchise started or Alien? I don't know if you saw this, Ben. Also recently, 2019, did you hear about a school in New Jersey? North Bergen High School. They did like a musical? They adapted the film into a play. It was like super low budget. They had like no money. So they scrapped everything together. Ridley Scott heard about it. He sent them this big congratulations. Sigourney Weaver went to one of the performances. And she like introduced them at the beginning and was there for the show. That's so cool. Imagine you are this high school group of students who decide you're going to recreate a 1979 movie. No, that would blow my mind. And you get the director and the lead action star from it to come to your school. Oh, my God. I would melt on stage the minute I walked out. My goodness. I could never look at the audience. So I did a lot of theater in high school. To, like, be okay to do whatever characters I were on stage, I never made eye contact. You would just look out in the audience as it was just, like, a weird forest. But if you walked out and you made eye contact with Sigourney Weaver in the audience, like, melt. Just just fall and drop. Game over. Frozen. That's so cool. That's the last piece that I had about a direct influence. I thought that was <laughs> so that was cool. so good. I would say just on the larger picture, again, we open this up with like female action and female sci-fi leads and heroes that are courageous and are there to save the day. This sets the groundwork. That's huge. I think seeing space, the future as a dirty, lived in, not perfectly working environment, this also sets the groundwork for wherever you see that kind of stuff going forward, I think is big. You think of like species that came in the 90s that were about like aliens interested in sex and that kind of thing. One thing I do want to say to your point about female action stars is too, like, I, yeah, they do show up in horror movies, but those don't tend to do well at the box office. This being such a big success in launching a franchise, yeah. you're right. Like that in and of itself, obviously, because as we saw, Hollywood's a little myopic with this stuff. And they're like, sci-fi is not going to sell. Star Wars, put it out now. Right, you know, like, right, right. I know there's a, women can't be lead actors. This movie comes out, we need a movie with a strong female lead, you know. So (laughs) unfortunately, they have to kind of have the kick in the pants or the we lost out on something before they finally jump on the clue bus. So maybe I didn't give it enough credit for breaking some ground. So yeah, I think, I mean, there's probably even more that we're not thinking of. We're we're not going to catch them all. But you know what? If we have such a ridiculous blind spot, call us out. Yeah, let us know. 80shighpodcast at gmail.com. Say, you two losers, forgot <laughs> X. This was the biggest thing to come from it. Yeah, exactly. Know. I'm getting a little bit of a nervous. The hair's kind of standing up on the back of my neck. I think I want to go down to the brain of this podcast and talk to Mother okay. and ask her what the chances are of this movie holding up in 2021. Let's do it. So before we give our own opinion, Entertainment Weekly voted this the third scariest movie of all time. The chest bursting scene was considered the second scariest movie of all time on Bravo's The 100th Scariest Movie Moments, with the number one scariest movie of all time being Jaws, Hmm. having the scariest scene. Okay. And what kind of drove me nuts in the documentary is that most of the cast and the crew in the documentary said at the end of the day, this to them, they felt like this was a thriller. 
not a horror? I would classify this not as a horror movie. I would call it action suspense thriller. Yeah. With horror elements. Yeah, with horror elements. I'm not like, I want to watch a good horror movie. Let's watch Alien. It's like, I want a dreadful, suspenseful action thriller. There's a lot of different elements here. And so that's what makes it so unique and so good. Yeah. Uh, so that being the case, how do you feel when you check in with Mother? What's Mother's readout to you <laughs> uh, if this movie holds up? All I'd say about Mother is every time they ask Mother a question, Mother didn't know crap. Like, Mother's supposed to know best. That Mother on Nostromo needed to have a few of her. She needed a self-diagnosis because she's always like, I don't know what you're talking about. It's completely That does useless. not compute. Not helping. I'm, you know what? I'm going to blame Ash. Ash messed with her circuit boards. Ash is such a pain in the butt. What blows me away most is the quality of how it looks, how it is presented, how it's acted. I wasn't joking when I said if you told me this movie was made recently, minus a couple elements, I'd probably believe you. Sure, a few things look outdated. The computer screens obviously look old. Even though they were meant to look old, they look really old. They look like they're from 1979. The opening space shot looks a little dated. Mm. And, you know, at the end, the alien does look like a person in a suit. But yeah. when the day is done, you can tell when a movie or a property or a whatever has a lot of care and attention to the details because it matters. And it just had that magical combination where all of those pieces came together. Again, the slow build, the pace, the growing dread, and the fact that they add these little layers on. You get this sense that something's going wrong, but you can't wrap your head around it. You don't know why. And then this alien, the moment you think you understand it, oh no, it's evolved into something different. Yes! And you don't know what comes next. That being said, I think I enjoy aliens a little more. I think I like it a little bit more. But there is a reason this movie is considered one of the best sci-fi movies of the decade and of all time, because it's a masterpiece and deserves all of the accolades it gets. Oh man, there's so much I can't say any better. So I'll just I'll just try and add a little sweetener on top. 100% I think it holds up. I never even thought of comparing it to Aliens, and I think I love them equally, but for very different reasons. Like sure. Alien gives me that tense claustrophobic, my heart's racing, I don't want to blink. I just want to like feel where the popcorn is next to me and then bring it to my mouth and just keep watching like yeah. I can't look away from it cuz it's it's amazing. Aliens is just awesome. Like it just feels like a fun cool action movie with great sequences, cool set pieces. They're just very different experiences. So I love them both for very different reasons. Mm -hmm. I second all the things that you said. I think one of the things that really sits with me of why it's so amazing is it it made me long for the time before CG Mm -hmm. and, and how a lot of film and television shot today. And I see that with two ways. One, so much film and television I watch today is just shot on location, which... I feel it can A, be a directorial choice to make it feel real, but I think it's also a way to save a ton of money. Sure. It's why we have so much reality television is because like these aren't real actors, so you can pay them crap, yep. and we're just going to film at their house. So you know, they're very cheap and easy to produce. You don't have to write a script. Nope. <laughs> so I feel with a lot of modern television and movie, it's shot in a place that already exists, which you know I guess is real in a way but not fantastically real. And I'm going to come back to that phrase, fantastically real. And the other thing is, or it's just CG, and it's just like made up, and it's it's computer edited. But Alien's a fantastical premise, right? It's insane. It's set way in the future. Nostromo's supposed to be 800 feet long, and the refinery's supposed to be a mile and a half tall. Yeah. That's insane. 
there's another alien species. There's two more alien species, whichever crashed the ship. And this how this whole life cycle, which there are like wasp parasites and that lay eggs inside. Yeah. It's a whole thing. Anyway. It's a fantastical premise, but because of how it's shot, how it's acted, how the set is built, it feels so believable, and that's what makes it terrifying. Yeah. And you're scared because some part of your brain has told you that this could happen, or maybe it did happen, and you're like, that's insane that I'm even thinking that. This is a movie. And I just don't feel that realism with a lot of things that aren't set like in the current day that I see in movies and television now. So it holds up. It's fantastic. I love it. Thank you for tolerating the first time we've deployed the emergency 70s disco ball. Once again, nobody cares but you. I do. And yeah, yeah, I it was a great pick. I rewatched Aliens recently, and when you chose Alien, I was like, oh, good. I need to go yeah. back to the genesis of it all. So it was a great timing, great pick, and a great way to open up our four-episode arc of scary October Halloween stuff. Now, just like Aliens is to Alien, a great yeah. sequel that I love for a different reason. Okay. How are you going to follow up next week on 80s High Season 2 October Edition? I'm so excited. Okay. <laughs> ben, let's keep with our theme of cosmic horror, but we're going to get away from the cold depths of unknown space and focus instead on a small New England town in 1957 where at that moment, a torrential rainstorm is taking place. <laughs> Along one of the streets runs a boy in a yellow slicker, having the time of his life. He's chasing a paper boat carried down the street oh. by the rushing rainwater. Oh, no. The boy looks ahead and his heart drops. He sees the boat getting sucked into a storm oh, drain. Oh, no. He peers down into the darkness, fearing he lost his boat forever. Oh, that no. is until a clown appears beneath the grate, ready to help poor Georgie. Oh, no! What happens from there will haunt all of our dreams as we delve into the terror that lurks within the sewers, emerging to feed on the inhabitants of Derry, Maine. That's right, dear listeners, on the next episode You'll float too as we examine the sprawling masterpiece, Stephen King's final exam on horror, the 1986 novel, It. No, wait, we're really doing the novel? I'm not going to make you read the novel, Ben. I can't read, I can't read 1,138 pages in six days. What? I can't read this novel in a week. It's one of the biggest, like, it's as big as War and Peace. What? No, Ben, you're not going to have to read 1,000 pages. You're going to have to listen to a 45-hour audiobook version, Woo! which is the real length of it, by the way. Really? Yeah. Oh, my God. <laughs> It's sprawling, man, but we all are familiar with the terror of Pennywise the Clown. Yes! I'm so excited to talk about this. Good pick. Mm. I'm very interested. Yeah, good call. All right. Well, get ready, buddy, for the next episode of 80s High. It. It. Thanks, everyone, for listening to 80s High Podcast by Ben and Chris. Our theme song is by Greg Reed at gregreedmusic.com with vocals by Chad Bumford. Show artwork is by Alex Goddard at alexgoddarddesign.com. If you like the show, please support us by passing a note to a friend in your next class. Also, you can rate us five stars on Apple Podcasts to help spread the rumor. Stay radical. <laughs> <laughs>